Thank you, worship team. Yes. Behold the empty tomb whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, good morning to you. It's always a great joy for me to be able to be here and uh, open the Word of God with you all. Um, We're going to be continuing our journey through the book of John. Uh, This is the second message in our series, If They Only Knew. And today we'll be looking at John chapter 18, beginning at verse 12. And today we're going to see a few things. The humility of our Lord Jesus as he was walking this path of obedience to the cross. Um, We're going to also see that having great learning and being religious to your toenails will not prevent you from crucifying the Lord of glory. Religion, pride of religion will get you nowhere. And third, we'll see Peter, how pride took him down from being a loyal follower of Christ to a cowardly denier. We're even going to see a barnyard animal having a role in this little drama. Now this barnyard animal is an evil animal. It's a rooster. And I have to tell you that the cartoons lie. Uh, A rooster does not just crow crow once when the sun crests the horizon. Cock-a-doodle-doo. And that's it. Oh no. Uh, The Lord has in providence given me a rooster outside my bedroom window. It starts crowing about an hour before dawn. To, to, I don't know how many hours after dawn. And it's not one crow, but I have to tell you, it's hundreds. And I'm thank, trying to thank God for that. Uh, it's hard. But we're going to see in our story today where God appointed a rooster to communicate a message as clear as any words could ever be to Peter. The cement in his memory that he had failed and that Jesus was right. But there's a story behind the story. So please turn with me to John chapter 18, beginning at verse 12. And I hope you have one of these little sheets. Uh, They're available from the ushers. Um, Help you follow along, assuming I stay on my outline. Um, As you turn there, our passage this morning, we're going to return to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, It's probably very late now. It's probably between midnight and one in the morning. Um, In Pastor Matthew's message last week, he shared with us how Jesus let himself be found by his betrayer and by those that sought him in order that we may not be lost. Um, Jesus had ensured the protection of his own and had submitted to the authorities there to arrest him. And this is where we pick up our passage this morning in verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. 
Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at, at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Then he, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. Then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I have to say, many of you today are going to be tempted as you hear this passage and read this passage to think, well, we've got another history lesson. Um, but Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and instruction or training in righteousness. That means even a passage like this one, who looks like a history lesson, can teach us something that we can apply to our lives today and take home with us for the week and for our lives. So I hope at the end of the day, you don't just say, well, I understand that passage better. I hope you're able to say, aha, I can hold on to something from the word of God that will keep me, guard me, and instruct me this week. So this morning, I'd like to focus on three things that God, I think, reveals in this passage. One is, Jesus let himself be bound so we could be set free. Two, like Jesus, we can trust God in unjust trials. And three, Jesus' warnings and Peter's failure gives us instruction. So as we dive in, let's take a moment to first understand a little bit about the passage, about the flow and the scene. As you've heard when we read it, this scene actually switches between the trial of Jesus and the denials of Peter. And they go back and forth. And this is unusual that a gospel would do this. But John is clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit believing it's important for us to understand the flow. That this is happening real time. These two things are happening simultaneously. So it's important for him to share with us that as Peter denies, Jesus is being tried. And it goes back and forth. The second thing we probably should understand is if some people get a little confused when they read 
as Jesus is standing there before Annas in verse 19 it says the high priest then questioned Jesus you see that and then at the end of that that trial in verse 24 it says so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest well I thought he was just there in front of the high priest well you got to understand that Annas was formerly a high priest and was high priest until AD 15 and was removed by the Romans you see the Jews considered the high priestly office a lifetime office but the Romans didn't care and the Romans did not they considered it a political office and if Annas wasn't playing ball enough with Rome they would eliminate him put him out of his office and put a new high priest in and they put in Caiaphas in in AD 18 now Caiaphas stayed as high priest until actually AD 36 three years after the death of Christ now the interesting thing here though is that the Jews still called Annas what do you call a deposed by Rome high priest he's still high priest he was still a high priest to the Jewish people but to Rome he had no power the only person with power was Caiaphas Caiaphas was appointed by Rome and that's why you see later after the trial before the Sanhedrin and the other gospels it was Caiaphas who took Jesus to Pilate Caiaphas was the one with power the last thing we learn is the father-in-law term why did John tell us that Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law well I think there might be some reasons of they might have believed similarly they were both Sadducees but I think it had a little bit more to because of family they lived in a common palatial estate and so because if you're reading these gospels it says that you know Peter was out in the courtyard before when he was in front of Caiaphas but Peter was in the same courtyard here when he's in front of Annas so how could that be well I think it's a common structure think with me there's residences on one side of the building there's residences on the other side and in the center there's a courtyard Annas lived on one side Caiaphas lived on the other but there was a common courtyard that way when Peter looked at this or, and the people in the, in the courtyard looked they could look whether he was in front of Annas or he's in front of Caiaphas as you keep this in mind it'll help you reconcile this and not get confused about high priest high priest same courtyard how'd they move him and it's the same courtyard we think it's one place Peter was right there in the courtyard as we go here I think one of the things we should say is that uh, this is a sham trial and the first thing we say is uh, Jesus let himself be bound so that we could be set free Jesus was not the first person in scripture that we read has been bound according to the will of God Uh, in Genesis 37 we read that Joseph was bound and sold into slavery and the psalmist confirms this in Psalm 105 verse 17 and 18 and he was bound then in accordance with the will of God and the plan of God to deliver the children of Israel from famine and from ultimate slavery so the fact that Joseph was bound was not a mistake it was not a capricious will of his brothers this is a plan of God now I think Pastor Matthew shared last week and I think it was great that sometimes we look at trials in two ways what we see it's almost like the back of a stitchery what we see looks like a mess but God looks at the other side and it's got a great design so we see one side we see trial we see injustice we see lots of things but God sees his ordained divine will 
And so what happens here is Joseph recognized that. And in Genesis 50 verse 20, as he's talking to his brothers, he said this. As for you guys, you meant evil for me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. See, God will use what looks absolutely wrong, unfair, unjust, evil to accomplish his good purposes. Joseph was caught in the middle of that and he found out by trusting God through that process that God had a greater design than just his brother's evil design. God can use what's unjust. And I think the second person we see in scripture that was bound was Isaac. In Genesis 22 verse 9, he was bound to be a human sacrifice. And it says in verse 9, they came to a place of which God had told them and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. See, really, this was Abraham's test of faith, right? But we need to understand something. Isaac is not a toddler. He's not a four-year-old. According to the timing of this and what we read and, and scholars believe, that he was probably somewhere between 20 and 35 years old. He was a young man. He was definitely strong enough to carry all the wood for a sacrifice up the side of a mountain. Well, you wouldn't put that on a six-year-old, would you? So we got to believe that Isaac had some role in this. If he wanted to overpower an aged elderly father of 120, I think he could have done it. If he had objected, he didn't have to permit it. So we must conclude that Isaac trusted his father and what he said God wanted to do. And he submitted himself. And we see this is exactly what Jesus did. He trusted his father and let himself be bound. Now the difference here is unlike Isaac, there would be no heavenly rescue for Jesus. There was no ram in the thicket for Jesus. God spared Isaac's life and Abraham's heartache by providing a sacrifice. But he provided a sacrifice for us in Jesus and he did not spare him. He knows what it's like to lose a son. See, Abraham didn't have to figure that out. God was willing to. According to Romans 8.32, it says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You get it? He spared his son. He, didn't, he wasn't trapped into it. He wasn't unable to rescue him. He spared, him, spared not his son. He had the ability to spare him, but he did not because he loved us. And Jesus allowed himself to be bound up by a death-seeking mob because he was simply taking a humble, obedient step toward the cross that his father had ordained for him. Just like Isaac submitted to his father. It's interesting to know that when Jesus was led bound by this mob back into Jerusalem, they believe he was led up through the northern gate, the sheep gate, that came in above the temple this is the same gate that they herded the lambs when they were sent to the high priest for inspection to find a blameless spotless lamb to be sacrificed for the nation Jesus was led through that same gate and taken to his trial and death he was the lamb of God that took away the sin of the world and God did not spare him well I think the other thing too 
It would be impossible, would it not? The reason I use the terminology, Jesus let himself be bound. How do you bind God if he doesn't want to be? Do you sneak up on him? Anybody think you can do that? No, Jesus was the almighty son of God and if he didn't want to be bound there was not a person there that could have bound him. No army big enough could have bound him. He allowed himself to be bound. He let himself be bound. Why? Because he had you and me in mind. His destination was the cross and for the same reason he let himself be found and the same reason he let himself be bound is he was there to pay for our sin debt. And he did. But the thing about that is that humility that Christ demonstrated, nobody else was able to lay a hand on him through his entire ministry. You know that. Um, But at this point, he humbled himself. And what did that get him? Well, according to Philippians 2, it says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those are in heaven, those in earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You get it? His humility led to his exaltation. This is an incredible thing, that he was bound. You, he let humans tie up God you can't even imagine the humility but he did it so we could be set free wow well just like Jesus we can trust God in unjust trials in verses 19 to 23 we read about Jesus' first trial before the high priest or the former high priest Annas See, and it's, I think it's interesting. Why did Paul, John include this? It's in, in no other gospel, John includes this little meeting with Annas. Well, I think it just further highlights the criminality, the injustice, the, the, the terribleness of this whole process and Jesus' humility as he went through it. I mean, he's not even being taken to the official judge, the, the real high priest and the Sanhedrin. He's been taken to some guy's house. And what does he say? hey, this isn't Hoyle, this isn't right. No. It's interesting though that the criminality of this process was evident and it just exposed the prideful hearts and the evil hearts of the religious leaders. Uh, The scholars have looked at this a lot more than I have and they say there were over 18 Mosaic laws broken as they ramrodded Jesus to death. Can you believe that? Eight, they were trying to get Jesus on one, blasphemy. But they were willing to violate 18 to get rid of him. A little hypocrisy there, wouldn't you think? A little pride. But they would do almost anything to kill Jesus. To get rid of their competition. To get him out of the way. Well, the criminality of this was, well, the trial was held at night. Jewish trials weren't supposed to be held at night. Annas in this passage right here asked Jesus to incriminate himself. Now you all know from watching TV that we have in the United States a thing called the Fifth Amendment. 
It says you don't have to testify against yourself. I plead the fifth. That doesn't mean you're innocent. This means I refuse to talk about it. Because if you don't have any other witnesses, I'm out. Jesus, knowing this to be true, he didn't answer the question about his disciples because it says here, tell me about your disciples. He says nothing about his disciples. Why? He's still clearly protecting them. He's not going to incriminate his disciples. He's trying to make sure that none are lost. When they said, well, incriminate yourself. He says, no. Listen to some witnesses. That's the procedure you're supposed to be following. I don't have to incriminate myself. But one of the underlings thought that was impertinent and slugs strikes Jesus. Now, this is the first time that the Son of God has ever been struck by man. Up until this point, people picked up rocks to stone him. What did he do? He walked right through them. Nobody could lay a hand on this God until God says, I will now be manhandled and mistreated in an unjust process, in an unjust way. Did you know in, Ro in Jewish law, it was illegal to do what that man did, even if he thought he was gaining points with the high priest? Because you cannot strike a bound accused man in a court until he's proven guilty, because he's innocent in Jewish law until proven guilty. They broke a law even in doing that. Jesus, how did he respond? What did he do when faced with multiplied injustices? What would we have done? Do you think we would have done what he did? See, we didn't hear him say, hey, this is a kangaroo court. This is illegal. I want my rights. Where's my lawyer? Um, this is wrong. Let me out of here. It says like a, a lamb before his uh, suffering is silent. Sheep before his shearers. No. Maybe he did this. Maybe he said, you know what? I still have the power of God. I'm going to vaporize all of you. Sometimes we wish we had that kind of power, don't we? If I, I'd make it right, right now. Okay. Well, maybe he could call the 12 legions of angels that he knew were standing by. No, he did none of these things. Why? Because he was here again to be found and to be bound so that we could be not lost, set free, and have salvation and eternal life. This is why he's doing this. He's quiet. He's obeying the Father in humility. I just can't even wrap my head around, if I knew I had the power to wipe these guys out, how hard it would be not to use it. That's the humility of Jesus. He says, no, the Father has a better plan and I'm sticking with the plan even though I could really resolve this really quickly right now. Well, what do we do? If you or I were faced with something like that, well, what was the real technique that Jesus used? How could he suffer this? Well, it tells us. And Peter, the eyewitness, is the one who tells us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He knew that, you know what? My father loves me. My father has power. My father could change this. My father is faithful. And my father is just. 
this will all come out right no matter what I'm looking at. He trusted God who judges justly. Don't we sometimes want to set the scales right right now? Make sure somebody pays a little bit for something? Jesus says his secret here is he trusted God who judges justly. So if you were like Joseph and you were falsely accused of a crime and put in jail for a crime you did not commit, what would you be doing? What would your strategy be? Meekness, quietness. Would you try to break out of jail? Have somebody smuggling a file and a cake? Um, Keep reminding people, I've been framed. Well, Joseph trusted God that he would rescue him. And he demonstrated this by how? When he got put into prison, he became a model citizen. He became a godly, humble man who says, I'm going to do the best I can where God put me. And what did God do to him? He moved him from a jail cell to the throne of Egypt. How else would you get a Canaanite shepherd boy on the throne of Egypt? What strategy would you use? This is God's strategy. He says, I'm going to have him sold as a slave and he's going to trust me. I'm going to have him put in prison falsely and he's going to trust me. He's going to be a demonstration of my faithfulness. And at the just, it says, at the just at the right time, God elevated him and put him on the throne of Egypt. Why? Because God had a plan. And Joseph cooperated. Now Joseph, I, I really believe this to be true. When the warden in the prison says that he was so impressed that God was with Joseph, he put Joseph in charge of the prison. This is the early retirement plan. The warden had nothing to do. Joseph ran the prison. As running the prison, wouldn't you think it would be logical if you ran the prison, you could let yourself out? But he waited for God's timing to let it. If he had let himself out, he had been a fugitive on the run forever. Because he waited for God's timing, he was vice pharaoh of Egypt and could redeem his people, save them from famine, and rescue them. You see, our waiting for God's timing is critical. This is Jesus' approach. He trusted God who judges justly. So what we need to do, it's pretty simple. We don't have to understand the trial we're in. We don't have to like it. We need to trust God. Because he's a sovereign and loving God. And he will never, ever fail. He loves you. And that's really important for us to remember. That he is always good. He's always faithful. He's always loving. He's always kind. He's always on our side he will never leave us or forsake us so does it matter what the trial looks like does that change God's faithfulness no so what we have to remember that unjust trials may be just part of God's plan for getting you where you need to be see we don't recognize circumstances very well I don't think any people on the planet do not just Christians you might think I broke a leg I'm really that's really bad Do you know what he might have spared you from if you had a good leg? 
When you get slowed down by that red light and you're really frustrated, do you know the accident he spared you from three minutes from now? When you look at these things, is really something a good circumstance or a bad circumstance? If you lost your job, oh, how bad. No, you just never would listen to him calling you and saying, quit and go over here. So if I had to fire you, get over here. Right? We don't look at circumstances the way God does. We look at our side and we need to look from his side. And see, Jesus can teach us that we can trust God even in unjust trials. Well, lastly, Jesus' warnings and Peter's failure give us instruction. Well, Peter wasn't probably the biggest coward of the group, although we give him the, probably the most stink. It's said that all 11 disciples fled, but actually two followed Jesus from a distance. There was Peter, and it says, and another disciple, the mystery man. Well, the gospel teaches us John never uses his own name in his own gospel. He would have told us if it was somebody else. This is John. So this is John and Peter following Jesus. Well, in verse 15, we see him and get to the gate of Annas. Verse 16, we see Peter's left out. Uh, we see John go back and said, hey, he's with me. If you're letting me in, let me in too. And it's interesting that the first uh, challenge for Peter came because of that association. But let's keep going. Jesus gave Peter three warnings. We want to go through them quickly. That very night that said he was in danger. The first one is Luke 22, verse 31. And he told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's interesting that we don't read here. Peter says, turn back from what? Peter just, okay, got it. Thanks for praying. Um, but it's an interesting response from Peter. But there was a warning there. He was going to be sifted. The next statement from Jesus, we learned that uh, Peter, after declaring his willingness to lay down his life for Jesus in John 13, 37, he, Jesus said this, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The Luke's passage says it even more, I don't know, hurtfully. It says, Peter, you're going to deny you even know me. Not deny you're my disciple. Not deny you don't follow me very well. Or I'm following him from a distance. I will deny. I don't even know the guy. That was probably something Peter never thought he would do. Well, the third thing in Mark chapter 14, Jesus was praying in the garden and was struggling. He asked his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to pray with him. He comes back and they're asleep. And it's interesting to note, I think it's interesting, the only person he addresses is Peter. He says this in Mark 14, 37. Then he returned to his disciples, found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He, he says, Peter, 
You, I know you have a temptation coming. And if you're not praying, you're in danger. Pray. Watch and pray. He didn't pray in the garden. And he didn't pray later. But Jesus gave him the warning. So let's look at the anatomy of Peter's failure. His spiritual fall. I think there's four steps in it that will teach us and we can be observant of in our own lives. Do we exhibit any of these traits? Because it led to Peter's downfall. One, spiritual pride. Two, an unteachable heart. Three, prayerlessness. And the fourth step is you will do impetuous acts of sin and self-preservation. You'll do almost anything if you have the first three preceding it. Well, let's go. Spiritual pride. Peter was confident. He was proud. According to Mark 14, he told them all the disciples are going to fall away. But Peter says, even if everybody else falls away, I won't. You're wrong, Jesus. You got this one wrong. Anybody want to tell God they're wrong? Peter had no problem. Peter exhibited pride. In fact, it was clear it was oozing out of every pore. And he says, why? Because I'm better than these guys, Lord. You don't know me. Hey, I'm stronger. I'm more talented. I've got more dedication. These guys are wimps. I gotcha. You hear the word? I. It was pride. He was counting on himself. But he didn't understand the spiritual battle he was going to be facing in a few minutes. It was not many hours later that he was in the battle for his life. Jesus knew it. And our battle is a spiritual battle. Did you know that? Do you know that when you have a battle with your boss or your spouse or something, what does it say in Ephesians 6.12? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against people. But against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our whole battle with life is not the other person. It's our spiritual condition, our trust in God. That's what's going to make the difference. It's not the other person's annoying habits. It's whether you trust God. Are you led by God? Does God direct your activity, your words, your mouth? It's a spiritual battle. Peter was in the middle of a spiritual battle. The, the Solomon said pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, it's interesting. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Do you know where that was written? Peter. Peter got the message. Pride is bad. It will lead you to do things you will never believe you would do. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is interesting. God opposes the proud but shows favor to them. Do you like a proud person? Is a proud person sometimes a little annoying in your workplace or in your home? Oh, you don't have proud people in your home. But in the workplace, the school... It says this, God is just not, I'm really unhappy with the proud. You know, those proud guys are really making a mistake. He says, no, I actively oppose them. Do you want God as your enemy or your ally? Be proud. 
Your friends may not like you anyway, but God will oppose you. God will oppose you directly. But he wants to give grace to the humble. He wants to favor you. Well, as we move through, Peter had an unteachable heart. Um, even after being warned three times by the Son of God, who should know, he knows that Jesus has never made a mistake, never said one thing wrong in his entire life. But when he told Peter what's going to happen, Peter discounted it. Didn't listen to it. Nah, nah, that won't happen to me. He had an unteachable heart. Because he was proud and relied on himself, God's words had no place in his heart. What is it supposed to teach us? God's word. That's what teaches us. It says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. God's word will even tell you when your attitude is out of whack. You haven't even said the thing wrong yet you were planning to say. But he already got to your heart. Why? If we listen to God's word, we can have a teachable heart. What does it say? James 1.22 Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Can you imagine getting ready for work, looking in the mirror, big smear of car grease from working on the car the night before? Eh, that's okay. That's what looking at God's word and not taking it to heart means. I am, I'm troubled by some people who read the Bible through in a year but don't do what it says. That does us no good. If we don't do what it says... We are not blessed. Um, what was Jesus' biggest tool for fighting Satan? Anybody remember? The word of God. Three times he was tested and three times all he said was a Bible verse from Deuteronomy. It is written. Jesus knew what Psalm 119.11 said. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How are we doing? How am I doing in hiding God's word in our heart? Do we have any tools for the battle? The, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Can you imagine going to battle? What's your tool? Uh, I seem to have forgot my sword. Don't put me on the front line, please. But you're on the front line every day. And without a sword, without God's word hidden in our heart, we're liable to do anything. And we will sin. Either because we just didn't know what God said or because we didn't want to know what God said. Well, I think to not be in the word of God every day, it gives evidence to a prideful heart that doesn't want to be taught. It's a proud, unteachable heart. And that leads to the next step that Peter took prayerlessness. Peter's pride and unteachable heart led him down to the third step. He says, I don't even need God. I got this. I've mastered it. I don't need to pray. Why pray? 
I'm good. I'm not going to do anything wrong. I told myself I wasn't going to do anything wrong. Uh, That didn't work for Peter. In fact, how did Peter get taken down? This is the same man who earlier said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So how, what big terrible trial took this brave, bold, sword-wielding disciple down? In verse 17, Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, Hey, I saw you're with John. You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? No, I'm not. It took something really tiny, not even scary, and he was done. What would take us down? If we're not humble, if we're not teachable and in God's word, and we're not praying, the smallest thing will take us down. You don't have to have a big trial to fail. You don't have to have one. A little one in the series of events. If you follow Peter's role downhill, you will fail on the smallest of trials. Well, impetuous acts of sin and self-preservation. Peter didn't believe what Jesus said about him. He had a higher opinion of himself than anybody else in the room. He wouldn't have ever guessed he would have denied his Lord that night. But it was just the final step. It was a natural step because of his pride, unteachableness, and prayerlessness. Do you know that if we are proud, unteachable, and prayerless, we too could do things you would have never, ever guessed and imagined you would do? What you would say. King David, a man after God's own heart, he wouldn't screw up, would he? He wouldn't have a problem. He loves God. Well, 2 Samuel 11 says, no, when he trusted his own self... He committed adultery first, then treachery second, then murder third, trying to cover up his tracks. How is that possible? When you do not preserve your life through a teachable, humble, prayerful heart, you could do anything. And I just, I I wonder, do you, you might think today you've got a wonderful marriage. I would never ever do anything to hurt my spouse. On what are you basing that trust? Is it on your own moral strength? Your willpower? Your desire? Those are paper tissue against a trial. Imagine a paper tissue against a flood. Gone in an instant. If you're not trusting God, you have no defense. No defense. Well, there's something I should say quickly and we have to move on. Many have heard the quote, and I'll repeat it. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And cost you more than you want to pay. We cannot play with sin. We can't meddle around the edges. We have to have a made up mind and be humble before God and says, God, if you don't protect me, I'll do anything. I'm going to trust your word. You said if I trusted you, you would never leave me or forsake me. You said that if I trusted you, that no temptation would overcome me. 
and I'm going to talk to you all day long because I need that help. Humility reveals a teachable, dependent heart to God. Well, when Peter got to the end of this story, he denied him the third time. The rooster crowed. It said that Jesus turned away from looking at the high priest and looked directly at Peter. Didn't say a word. What do you think that look conveyed? If Jesus looked at you after you miserably failed, what do you think that look would convey? I knew you would. Was it I told you so? Uh, maybe you'd think it would say, hmm, I'm disappointed. I'm sad. Or maybe it would be hope. It says, Peter, always remember, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. God has heard my prayer. And when you are restored, I want you to go back and encourage and strengthen your brothers. Do you think he got condemnation from Jesus? I don't think so. But he got acknowledgement. And I think it was a look that tore Peter up. It says that Peter went outside recognizing what he did and he wept bitterly. I know that I would have wept bitterly if Jesus looked at me. And there's many times I failed him and I know if he was standing here looking at me, I would have been weeping. But God would spare us the need for weeping and for grief. He says, there's a, there's a remedy just be humble. Just listen to me and be teachable. Just pray. Because the alternative is to go outside and fail and weep miserably. Well, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ today, you're still bound by the cords of sin and of Satan. You, you can't get away. But Jesus took those cords on himself so that you would be set free. That's why he was bound to be set free for each one of us. Please, all you need to do is acknowledge that he paid that price for you. He went to the cross. He was humble before his God, walked to the cross, died, rose on the third day. If you just believe that and repent of your sins, Jesus said you will have eternal life. You will have eternal life. No doubt about it. Does that mean you won't fail miserably? Anybody fail God? Anybody ever failed God? I want my hand to be the highest. I have failed God. But God, we have to see the rest of the story of Peter. It comes later. There is restoration. There is hope. Failure wasn't the end of the story. God had prayed for him and his faith did not fail. And he became the boldest preacher at Pentecost the world's ever seen. Well, in life's injustices, we must rest and fully trust in God who judges justly. If you're ever in an unjust trial, you've got to know that he's using this trial and circumstances to perfect your faith, to refine your character, to accomplish his will, to make you more like Jesus. And you're never at the whim of an unjust man or an unjust system. Do you know that whenever we see injustice in this world, it is not happening randomly. God is sovereign in control. And he's accomplishing his purposes for this earth that we'll never understand maybe till we arrive. And even then we may not understand. But we've got to trust him that he knows us. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. 
He'll never leave us or abandon us. Well, our moral failures and sinful failures like Peter's seem to always begin with spiritual pride. I'll never do that. I can't do that. I'm against that. How many people have said those things and fallen? Too many church leaders even have fallen because they've trusted in themselves and not in God. Well, it has been said, your greatest weakness is an unguarded strength. It's the area of your life you already think you've mastered. Do not rely on your mastery. Rely on Christ. Christ alone. He is what will get you through any trial, any injustice, any situation. Christ alone. You know, I pray today, I really pray for all of us that I'm the first one I have to talk to. There's areas in my life I still got pride and God still is peeling back the onion and showing, hey, what about this? What about that? And I pray that I have a teachable heart because I really pray for all of you that no one ever finds out what would happen if you lived a spiritually proud, unteachable, and prayerless life because it would end in failure and bitter weeping. And I would spare everyone in this room and everyone who knows Christ that end. Let's just trust God. Father, thank you for being with us. Thank you for showing us how to go through injustice and trust God. Thank you for showing us, Father, through Peter, that failure was not the end, but there's certainly a pattern that we can observe in our own life. If we detect any pride in us, Father, would you help us remove it, get rid of it? You said, I need to humble myself before you. Help me to do that. Father, you said that if if we're not teachable, if we're prayerless, we will fail. Help me never to go in battle without the sword of the Spirit. Help me never to face my day without trust and communication with my God that he will deliver me from all temptation. Just like Jesus taught his disciples, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all evil. Would you do that for each one of us today, Father? In Jesus' name, amen.